Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. First, some unfinished business from last week. Here's a comment that came in uh, last week regarding a, a show. Uh, this listener said, I was just listening to Access Utah segment about BYU and sexual assault, but only caught the end of the program. Uh, I think it is important to note that institutionalized sexual assault is not only prevalent on university campuses, but also in the workplace. Take the sexual assault and harassment at Grand Canyon National Park, for example, where a government agency with the possibly the most strict equal employment opportunity regulations has sided with perpetrators for decades. Um, And uh, the uh, commenter goes on uh, to say that we need to get uh, better at talking to everyone about what constitutes sexual assault and hold perpetrators accountable and dispel many misconceptions. This is an institutionalized problem with socialization of men and women in general. For example, our nation's epidemic of sexual assault is inextricably linked to our nation's unequal pay between men and women. Thanks for that comment. Keep those coming to upraxis at gmail.com. Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. UPR listener Gene Lown emailed us recently to say, I'm reading Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right. I recommend that you have Jane Mayer as a guest on Access Utah. Well, Jane Mayer joins us for the hour. Uh, Jane Mayer says that rather than what we might have thought of as a recent popular uprising against big government leading to the ascendancy of broad-based conservative movement, What has really happened is the creation of a network of very wealthy people, led by the Koch brothers, with extreme libertarian views, who bankrolled a systematic step-by-step plan to fundamentally alter the American political system. The book, once again, is uh, Dark Money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right. Jane Mayer joins us. Thank you for joining us today. So glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Where did, what's the impetus for this book? What what got you interested in uh, in uh, in this topic? Well, I cover politics for the New Yorker magazine and before that for the Wall Street Journal. And so you really cannot cover politics in this country without covering money. Um, it's a big part of politics. And you can't cover political money without stumbling across the Koch brothers. They are such oversized spenders that you just trip over them. And I got interested in who they were and what they wanted and why they were pouring such an amazing amount of money into American politics. You uh, you start your book with a with a dramatic scene. I wonder if you could recreate that for us. Uh, this illustrates uh, the, the amount of money, the secrecy. Uh, so the Koch brothers have been convening, I think, semiannual meetings. But with the uh, election of uh, Barack Obama, uh, I guess that it's produced a, a lot of interest among this particular subset of, uh, of billionaires. Yeah, so um, what interested me was, I think most of the people in the country's eyes were turned on Obama's inauguration in January of 2009, after the, the he, Obama had first been elected, and there was an awful lot of excitement about the first African-American president. And But there was another meeting going on um, on the other side of the country, out in um, uh, Palm Springs, California. There was a meeting of billionaires and multi-multi-millionaires, a small group, but very, very influential businessmen, including the Koch brothers who had organized this conference. And it was very secretive. Um, nobody was allowed to know who was meeting there, and they have kept the lists of their guests very, very close to themselves. But um, 
this group got together and I got some descriptions of what was going on. And in essence, they were planning a way to undermine everything that Obama wanted to do. And it started right at the beginning, before Obama had really taken his first action. Um, and they got together, they, they looked at his election as a catastrophe for the country from their political standpoint and from their business standpoints. Many, many, many of these people, and I eventually pieced together a number of, of the names of the people who were there, many of them had tremendous business interests at stake, and they didn't want to see an activist, liberalish government cracking down on regulations and on um, SEC kinds of cases and tax cases. And they got together to sort of plan, you know, how do we take this on? How do, how do we undo the import of this election? What is the uh, what are the central ideas here? This isn't mainstream conservatism. I think it's it's further right than that, isn't it? Well, that, that's another thing that interests me because I've been I've been following and covering politics since I covered Reagan, the, the Reagan White House for the Wall Street Journal. So I've been watching this for a long time. And what's interesting about the Kochs in particular and the group that they have now assembled around them, which has become extraordinarily powerful, is that they are are they were considered the fringe, um, the so far right they were almost off the map, even back in the Reagan days. Uh, pe- people, this has been a kind of a 40-year plan and a 40-year march of this group to push their ideas into the mainstream of the Republican Party and the mainstream of the country. But when they began, they were they were so far out that um, people don't remember in 1980 Charles Koch and David Koch were members of the Libertarian Party, and Charles, who's the oldest brother of this family, um, got his younger brother David to run as um, uh, for vi- the vice presidency of the United States on the Libertarian ticket. They they ran this campaign against Reagan in 1980 because they regarded Reagan as a sellout and way too liberal. So it gives you an idea where they were on the political spectrum. They're far to the right of Reagan. And at the time, Reagan was looked at as pretty far right by this country. He was bringing in a new kind of conservative movement, but it was never conservative enough for the Kochs because fundamentally they they are very close to being anarchists when it comes to the way they look at government they they think that the the smallest possible government is the best and and almost no government does good from their standpoint they believe in government only doing what they call the night watchman duty which is looking out for private property and um and enforcing contracts but beyond that they really would like to see almost all of it um wiped away and so, so, you know, so they're far out there, and 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 they have really funded over the forty years since then a, a movement to try to bring those ideas into the mainstream of America and discredit the whole idea of of government, which they call big government. Where, where does this come from? Do you think is it, it get out of the way of my business, or what? Uh, is it more? Is it deeper than that? Well, they would say it's it's deeper and purer than that. They would say that it's it's an ideological movement that that sort of brings to life the ideas of economists like um, um, Hayek and um, and Ludwig von Mises, these sort of Austrian economists who who were very influential to Charles Koch when he was a young man. He read them, but 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 what I you know you cannot help but notice if you've got your eyes open at all is that 
all of these ideas serve their private political interests person and their financial interests i mean they have the you have to remember who the the cokes are they the, those two brothers own between them almost completely um the second largest company private company in america it's it's a gigantic conglomerate that's deeply involved in so many areas of of commerce it's hard to keep up with but but fundamentally it's a fossil fuel company that has pipelines and refines oil and and has coal and gas and um chemicals and um Stainmaster Carpet and uh, Georgia Pacific Lumber and makes, um, you know, Vanity Fair napkins and uh, quilted northern toilet paper. It's in tons of things. But it's a company that, according to the EPA, has had a very long record of huge pollution issues. And so they have been at war with regulations on pollution. And they favor, their ideology favors a kind of government that would weaken these regulations terrifically. So it's in their interest to argue for, for very weak government. They also have been at war with taxes. They absolutely, um, you, you know, are, they, they regard and have for years taxes as stealing their money. And so they, they you know, that is, that they, they regard um, but it's at the same time, you know, because they are so wealthy, they're each worth about um, $45 billion, and they're, they each make about a billion dollars a year from their company, they obviously have a very large tax load to carry. So this is, again, something that's very much in their personal interest. But they would say it's in everybody's interest. Mm-hmm. I want to go back and get some of the history, fascinating history. Uh, their father, I think, was a founding member of the John Birch Society. Uh, for one example, that is correct. So and so, you can see this this passing down through the generations. Um, their father, Fred Koch, founded the company. They're, they're inheritors, actually. They they've made a lot of money themselves, but they are heirs to a huge fortune. Koch Industries was started by the father, and um, um, it's it's ironic given his politics. Um, but the father, Fred Koch had trouble making money in America. He said he had legal problems with the the, the an, um, kind of a innovation he had on how to refine oil. And so he took it abroad. And the first really big business he did was for Joseph Stalin in the first five years of this, the Soviet Union. So here you have this right-winger who's, you know, totally anti-communist later, who's doing, making a fortune working with Stalin. And then after, after that, uh, I discovered when I was writing this book, <laughs> the father then went to, to work with Adolf Hitler in in Germany, um, the Koch's company built of of the a very important refinery for Hitler, along with a partner who was considered an American partner who was considered an agent of in, influence for Hitler by the U.S. Justice Department, and um, that refinery became a source of the kind of fuel that that fueled the uh, Air Force. For, for Hitler during the, the Nazi period. And so we wound up having to, the U.S. and allies had to bomb that refinery. They did it, they bombed it several times and it kept getting rebuilt. And by then the, the Koch father had, had declared his allegiance to the United States um, and said he was, you know, certainly against the Nazis by then. But he'd had quite a flirtation and spent a lot of time in Nazi Germany. Um, and there's some 
just bizarre and uh, uh, family history having to do with this that that I dug up that you you just absolutely could not make up, including a including a nanny who was a fervent. Exactly. Um, pro, pro Nazi. Um, he it, the the father hired um, the father was a very commanding figure and loomed huge over these boys, and it was was somewhat um, scary to his own wife who didn't want to oppose him. And somehow, while he was doing business in in Nazi Germany, he um, hired a German nursemaid for his boys. Um, there were only two of the four. Eventual four had been born by then, but she just um, she she came to Kansas, where the family was based, Wichita, Kansas, and terrified these little boys and, and was a, a tremendous um, supporter of the Nazis, so much so that when, when Hitler invaded France in 1940, she said um, to the family she needed to go back. She wanted to go back to Germany because she was so excited she wanted to celebrate with the Fuhrer. And mm. so that's when wow. she left the family behind. But by then, you know, she had, had bloomed very large in these little boys' lives. And, I, you know, she was said to be really a scary figure to them. Um, mm. And it's, it's interesting, you know, you can't be a psychiatrist, at least I'm not one, but you really wonder what kind of um, impression she made on those, those little boys. As their, their parents traveled all the time, so they were really in her hands. This is a fascinating uh, family. Uh, f- uh, four brothers, I think? There were four brothers. Um, you only, when you think of the Koch brothers, you only really hear about two, and that's the eldest one, Charles, and um, and David, who's one. But David has a twin brother named Bill, and um, I'm sorry, Charles is not the eldest. I have to correct that. There is an older brother. He's older than the other three, but um, I'm sorry, the other two. He's older than the twins, but there is an older brother named Freddie, um, and you never hear about Freddie, but. Um, Freddie actually played a very interesting role in the family growing up. He was the one that didn't fit in, and um, he was uh, had a kind of a manner that was very artistic and somewhat effeminate. And by the time that the four boys all were given shares of the company by their father, they were extremely competitive with each other and very, very much sort of out to take over the company and take over the family fortune from each other. They, they were actually they litigated against each other for twenty years, and they, three of them, ganged up against this oldest um, brother, uh, Fred, and uh, they. I, I got a hold of uh, a deposition that was taken that's been sealed, but it describes a kind of a horrific family scene where the three brothers uh, sort of snared the oldest one into coming to what they said was going to be a, a corporate meeting, and instead they set up three chairs against this one fourth chair where he was to sit, and they accused him of being homosexual. And they said that if he did not turn over his shares in the company to them, they were going to to tell their father that he was gay and that he would likely be disinherited and it might kill their father. And um, the oldest brother, Fred, Frederick, um, you know, it's almost too painful in this family for people to talk about this anymore. But anyway, he, he, he got up and walked out and said he never wanted to hear about it again. And... Um, but it was all documented in this deposition, and it gives you a sense of the. It's not the coziest family to grow up mm. in. Put it that way. Yeah, it could could be uncomfortable uh, home for Thanksgiving with the family. Uh, well, they, they actually the, the 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 they don't they do not have Thanksgiving dinners together. The oldest bro- brother um, has not spoken to Charles, I think, in 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 many many decades, mm. and. Um, 
they um there was even fighting over that when, when their mother died there was a funeral and and two of the sons felt that that they had not been invited in time to get there really and that they almost didn't make it and that when they were they were left out and um it, it, it's 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 they fought over the inheritance they they have just fought mercilessly, which is so interesting because they all inherited hundreds of millions of dollars. But money in this family um, is not really just about having enough. I think it's probably so much deeper than that. It seems to be about, you know, who's loved most by the parents, who's most successful, who's got the most power. Um, it's 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 been a struggle through this family throughout, and now of course, money is being used by the same family to try to get power in America in a big way. Mm-hmm. Before we take a break, and we'll we'll loop back around to this later in the hour, but as we've been talking about, you know, power struggles, uh, sort of the psychological underpinnings of a billionaire family, I've been thinking about the Trump family. Um, and so this is this is fast forwarding the story uh, quite a bit, but I, I just read recently that uh, Charles Koch um, apparently is not a Trump fan. In fact, he even allowed that there's a possibility he could vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, is that do you think uh, the ascendancy of Trump? Do you think that in some ways that's a, that's a setback for the, for what the Kochs want to accomplish? Well, they wanted what the Cokes have always wanted um, from the days when they challenged Reagan is a candidate who will shrink the government and shrink regulations and shrink taxes to the point that it's good for them. And um, they're not hearing that from Trump. And if you listen to the interview that Charles Koch actually gave on ABC yesterday, all he said was, we don't like what we're hearing from Hillary Clinton, but if she started saying what we liked, well, sure, we would we would consider her. It wasn't exactly a, a full-fledged endorsement. All, she, all he said was, you know, we don't like what any of these candidates are saying that much. None of them are, are, are as far right as the Kochs are or promising to sort of push the Koch's agenda in the way that they have they had really hoped for this year. They, they've put a mass, uh, a war chest of $889 million, they said, between themselves and the group of investors that they've gathered around them. And they were hoping they could really buy a candidate who would do what they want, but none of them are turning out to be exactly their complete cup of tea. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to get to more of the history. And uh, we'll pick it up at 1980. I, I think Charles Koch, there, there was a, a change in his ambitions, I think, politically. And when, exactly. when, when his brother, uh, uh, you know, the, as the vice president on the Libertarian Party, lost, got 1% of the vote. We'll talk, pick it up uh, there when we come back. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the George C. Eccles Ice Center located at 2825 North, 200 East in North Logan. Cache Valley's year-round ice arena offering date night skating every Thursday evening from 615 to 830. Information available at 435-787-2288 or EcclesIce.com. This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. Some call it the silver tsunami or the graying of America. 20% of Americans are projected to be 65 or older by 2030. And Utah is a pilot state in a national movement promoting creative aging. According to the National Center for Creative Aging, Utah Arts and Museums, and Engage Utah, 
All individuals can flourish across their lifespan through creative expression. Research on older individuals learning to play the violin helped change decades-old assumptions about the brain's ability to form new neurons later in life, and studies have found therapeutic connections between music and memory that benefit individuals suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, featuring the New Horizons Orchestra for adult musicians of all skill levels. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. By listener request, we are talking with Jane Mayer on the program today. Her book is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. That's a toll-free number, 1-800-826-1495. Or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. We're talking most specifically about the Koch brothers, Charles and David Koch, billionaire industrialists, political patrons, and their organization. Uh, Jane Mayer, uh, it's, it's, uh, Charles Koch is very, very fascinating. They all are, but uh, I think Charles Koch, he's the driving force here, I believe, isn't he? He is. I think he's a unique figure in American politics right now. I, I, I found him, I agree with you, I found him completely fascinating. He's very bright. Um, he's got two degrees from um, uh, MIT um, in, in engineering and uh, chemical engineering and nuclear engineering. And um, he's got a drive that is is just you know stunning. I mean, he's built this company into just a, a, a an amazing. Really, it's a phenomenal company. It makes so much money. So um, and but he's not just plain a successful businessman. What's interesting is he's 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 very tied up in ideology. He's quite zealous about it. And he is, um, you know, he reads all the time, and he is um, an an acolyte of very obscure um, kinds of the the sort of fringe academics who believe that the free market needs to be completely dominant in every way. Mm. Um, So we've talked about uh, the father, Fred Koch, a founding member of the John Birch Society. Uh, Charles, I believe, you write... uh, believed that some of what the John Birch Society was doing, he admired some of their methods, but he, he did not subscribe, as Fred did, to some of the conspiracy theories. I'll just add parenthetically here, I, I was exposed <laughs> growing up in Vernal, Utah here. Uh, in my neighborhood, we had uh, several John Birchers, and that's what I remember from them is, is the conspiracy theories, which were pretty out there. You know, uh, it's true, and he, he, as I said, he was very bright, and he did reject that part of his father's um, ideology, but he retained a kind of a, a conspiratorial view of, of government, which he looks at as, a, as an evil force. And, uh, um, and they also, it's, it's interesting, the Birch Society copied the, the, the Soviet model in one way, which was that they, they really liked, they, they, they studied the Communist Party and all the kind of secretiveness of it and the strange groups that formed with weird acronyms. And, and, and the Birchers tried to form many of their own groups like that, that had strange names and, and acronyms and were extremely secretive. And you see that in the Kochs as well. I mean, they, they have funded a, a, a many, many, many different groups that you, so many, it's really hard to keep up with them all. And, and they tend to be also extraordinarily secretive. So you, you can kind of see some of the 
the same thinking going throughout the whole um, process through the generations. Uh, what was the quote? William F. Buckley had a famous quote about. Well, this is the thing, again, I mean, what you have to understand, if you look at the whole history here, is that William F. Buckley called the Kochs and their movement anarcho-totalitarians. So you have what we consider to be, most people consider to be kind of the father of the modern conservative movement, someone who, who sort of personified the, the, the right in its, in its um, rebirth in America, who, who looked at them as kooks, basically. And, and so it, it gives you an idea, again, of where they're coming from and how far they have come. They are now, I mean, their ideology is very much at the center of the Republican Party. And, and there's a, a, a new study out from Harvard's um, Theda Scotchpole, who, who is a, a professor of political science and sociology at Harvard, has a study out called The Coke Effect. And she describes how they have, at this point, become sort of a magnet pulling the Republican Party their way on issues such as getting rid of the EPA and getting rid of the IRS and lowering taxes. And you can hear a lot of this in Ted Cruz, for instance, right now. Um, and you can hear a little bit of it in Trump, frankly. Trump, if you hear him talking about global warming, he has very much the same point of view the Kochs have. You know, again, they're a huge fossil fuel company. They don't want to believe in global warming because it's bad for their business if you do anything about it. And so um, they, um, you know, pretty much Trump has the same line. And pretty much every candidate in the Republican Party who wants to be elected has to take that line at this point because all the money to get elected on the Republican side is is saying that global warming's not for real. So the the movement you might call it the the organization the goal has been pretty successful then. Well, it hasn't it hasn't. I mean the it's what's 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 funny when you listen to the Koch talking and again you can take a listen to um to uh, Charles Koch's interview with on ABC yesterday with on, on George Stephanopoulos' show, they're never satisfied. I mean, they never feel that the country is going their way enough. Um, but it's partly because they are such extremists. It, you know, you, it's very hard to take a country of this size with this many voters of this many points of view and, and pull it that far over towards the extreme right. And so they're unhappy with the current crop of, of candidates, um, as they have been pretty much with every crop of candidates. And, for instance, you can hear Charles Koch criticized in this interview. He criticized George W. Bush because he felt that, that government grew too much under George Bush and regulations grew too much under George Bush. And particularly, they hated the uh, prescription drug program that the Bush administration passed. So anything that... that, that 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 uses government for the public good from their standpoint is is a mistake and so they are against it and it, you know so none of these candidates really hew quite enough to their line they would have probably liked walker um the the candidate from um wisconsin but he he bombed out early he was he was one of their favorites but he just wasn't popular enough do you, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Norman Ornstein, uh, uh, Thomas Mann, their, their thesis that both parties have moved away from the, if you could uh, visualize the football field, mo- both parties have moved away from the uh, 50-yard line, but the Republicans have moved a lot further away. Uh, how much do you think uh, the Koch brothers and their, their movement uh, explains that on the Republican side? 
Well, you know, it's hard to measure, of course. Um, you can see the money going in, and you can see the results in terms of w- the kinds of stands that, that uh, uh, the Republican candidates are taking. Um, it's hard to, you know, prove that the money is what made them take those stands. Um, but, but, but certainly that's been the aim of the Kochs, to, to fund um, the party in such a way, almost take over the Republican Party and make it a sort of a, a, a party of the Kochs. And they've been working at it um, for 40 years. And, you know, I, th- I, I, I would say, I mean, I'd argue that they've, they've had a lot of success. Um, the party has certainly become much further right than it was when I was covering um, Reagan for the Wall Street Journal. It, it, the, the people like the Kochs were considered um, the fringe then, and they are now at the center of the party. So, you know, it's, it, they, it, I would argue that they've, they've had a fair amount of success, really, given, given that many of their views are just not actually that popular when you poll them. So it, 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 I think you're looking at the power of big money here. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in it's, it's like dangled out there as an incentive for candidates, and, and, and they'll, they'll go in the direction where the money is. I hate to say it, but it, it, it certainly seems true. Yeah, and that's uh, that. That is that's the big topic. We'll, we'll get to that. We have a caller. Nick in Logan has called us. Nick, welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I just wanted to. I feel like correct something the uh, the author said is this idea that the Koch brothers support uh, a free market. I would say is uh, is completely wrong. If you watch the behavior, they work they're working particularly hard to suppress the free market of uh, solar energy, an alternative energy on uh, in America. Uh, they've they've had uh, they've stopped the development of solar energy in many states through the control of utility companies. And it's all about maintaining their own industry as uh, making money off the fossil fuels. And even I, the- I, you know, and I totally agree. I have to say, I think the caller is is on the money about that. And it's that they say it's the free market that they're favoring. And um, but in fact, in many ways, if you look at what they're doing, um, they are using their tremendous influence to squelch competition to themselves and 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 you're right certainly about um this all in several places around the country in florida um is is one of them where they have used their political groups to try very hard to stop any kind of um growth of of solar power and so that's true and they've actually also taken positions occasionally that are completely non-free market that are very surprising such as supporting tarp the um the troubled assets bailout of the big banks, you would think that um, far-right free market supporters would have been against TARP, and it was one of the issues that really launched the Tea Party. But very quietly, the Kochs changed sides on, on the issue of TARP. And um, when the stock market fell apart, they changed sides. Their organization, Americans for Prosperity, had been against the TARP bailout. And when the stock market fell apart, it quietly t- told the uh, uh, congressmen and senators that they favored the bailout. Um, they wanted to stop the slide in the stock market. So they will pu- they will put the Koch's interests first often. Um, and so I, th- I agree. Your caller is is I think making a really good point. Well, thank you, Nick. 
Yeah, okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so, uh, and, and Nick called 1-800-826-1495. Love to hear your perspective as well. 1-800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. We're talking with Jane Mayer. Uh, her money, her uh, book is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical uh, Right. Let's, uh, let's jump in and talk about the, the big money and its influence in uh, politics. Uh, that's the concern, isn't it? I mean, in the free market of ideas, Koch brothers are free to, you know, to get their ideas out there. Some might say, okay, you've got George Soros and others on the left as well, so let's have at it. So where, 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 where is the, where's the problem? Well, I, I think the concern, if you you know talk to a lot of people who are watching this closely, is that the the those with tremendous amounts of money will drown out ordinary voters. So that this whole kind of ideal of one man one vote is is somewhat imperiled by um, what increasingly a, a number of uh, sort of academics are, are raising the question about whether we're looking at at the development of kind of an oligarchy. You know, the, it, it goes hand in hand with the concern about um, the sort of growing economic inequality in the country. When you've got um, a small slice of the population with so much money, inevitably political influence goes with that. And, and, and it's, it, the, a number of academic studies have shown that big funders are what the, the elected officials listen to and that the, the, the influence of people without money is almost negligible in terms of what, what the elected officials listen to. There's a, there's a pretty famous study on that. And, um, you know, so that's the worry, that, that, that they may have interests that have nothing to do with the welfare of the rest of the country. And, and it, so it becomes kind of undemocratic, really. And, and, and I, you know, I think we're kind of at a tipping point right now I wouldn't say. I, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm a political reporter, and I'm you're careful about, you know, declaring that we're living in an oligarchy or whatever. But I I think it's we're at a point where it's a it's a legitimate worry, and um, the system seems off kilter to many many people, and I think that's probably why you're seeing so much um, excitement out there for candidates like Bernie Sanders, and in a way for Trump. Um, because Trump stands up there and says, nobody owns me but myself. And he denounces lobbyists and, um, you know, the, the, the big donors, because he says, I'm, I, I am my own donor. And, and people think that the, the others are sort of corrupted. They're, and they're, they're looking at a corrupt political system, and, and they, they see Sanders and Trump as, in some ways, cleaner as candidates. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's at a boiling point right now. Uh, another factor, I think, I'd love to get your feelings on this. Uh, a certain segment of the voting population just seems to be fed up with government, you know, full stop. And that seems to match up with, with the Koch brothers' philosophy. Well, you know, there's always been a strain in um, America of, of kind of, um, suspicion about big government, the sort of Jeffersonian idea, and um, but it, it's it's uh, um, it's been so much promoted 
by the Kochs and their group. And this is, I mean, the book is not just about the Kochs. It's about a handful of families that beginning, really, it's a multi-generational fight also by a, a handful of extraordinarily wealthy families who have disliked the idea of a progressive activist government, first in the progressive era, um, and then uh, particularly under the New Deal, under FDR, and then they, they disliked the Great Society, and there's a, a portion of it that was against um, racial integration. And these same families have taken their fortunes and, and fought the idea of a progressive government for for years now. And what they've done is really fascinating. They haven't just been fighting in elections, and that's what the book is trying to, to describe. They've built a machine that that um, distributes their ideas into um, and tries to change American opinion on the subject of government specifically. So they have funded free market think tanks, they would call them. Um, they have funded programs in um, 300, over 300 colleges and universities so that kids are sort of indoctrinated in this. Um, they have pushed this ideology in political groups that they say are just grass movements groups, but which are actually funded by these same billionaires and multimillionaires and their companies, um, organizations like Americans for Prosperity that now has um, chapters in almost every state. And um, they have just um, created kind of a a subsidized movement against government. And it's it's stirred up a lot of, of emotion out there. Let's take another break when we come back more with uh, Jane Mayer. Uh, the, the book is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Uh, and uh, you can join the program at 1-800-826-1495. We have a caller uh, who we'll get to right after the break. Uh, and uh, email is upraxis at gmail.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing. 630 West, 200 North, Logan personalized printing for home or business, including wedding announcements, thank you cards, and family histories. Information at squareoneprinting.com. And support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Uinta Basin, offering over 45 accredited degree options, including business, nursing, and education. More information at uintabasin.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. By listener request, we are talking with Jane Mayer. Her uh, book is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Jane Mayer is author of uh, previous books, including New York Times bestselling The Dark Side. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. We turn next to Tyson in Logan. Tyson, glad you called. Go ahead. Looks like we lost Tyson. So, uh, call back, Tyson, 1-800-826-1495. Jane Bear, uh, um, I wonder if you'd uh, talk a bit about Citizens United and how that matches up with the, with the groups you're talking about. Um, it's it's had a tremendous effect, and 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 actually some unforeseen consequences. Um, when when the Supreme Court decided the case uh, in 2010, there there most people thought that it would unleash a ton of corporate money into American politics, but 
that's actually not what happened necessarily. What happened instead was many companies, particularly publicly owned companies, were afraid of getting too politically involved because they were afraid that it would alienate their customers. Um, so they didn't actually pour the the money into politics as expected. Instead, enormously wealthy individuals did. So you saw the empowerment of, of a billionaire class of donors, really. And so we've seen, you know, people like Sheldon Adelson, uh, the Las Vegas casino owner, and um, a number of the big uh, Wall Street and hedge fund titans have, have gotten very involved. Robert Mercer, particularly, um, is one who's a tremendous funder right now. He has, uh, he's the co-manager of, of a hedge fund called Renaissance, and um, in New York, and um, and the Cokes and their or, and their group, it 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 gave them an enormously more power. And by then, Charles Koch, who um, had long been trying to figure out ways to get influence in America without being able to win elections, um, he'd had a hard time winning elections, as you mentioned in 1980. He'd been thinking about, well, how else can you get influence? over American politics, and one way was to fund this whole kind of operation of, of uh, grassroots groups. And um, so anyway, by, the, by starting in 2003, he also put together an organization of fellow billionaires and multimillionaires. They'd get together and they'd pool their money. Um, well, after Citizens United, this group grew tremendously in, in size and influence. Um, in the first four years of the uh, Obama administration, I counted, they had gathered 18 or 19 billionaires, if you include the Cokes, and um, um, and had something like $300 billion um, in the, the joint worth of the people in this, in this tiny little clutch of people. Um, so the money that was gathered was tremendous, and they could spend it in much more freely and much more politically after Citizens United. And they did. So you begin to see the first real test of their spending was the 2010 midterms. And there was um, they poured money into uh, Republican races that year. And as people will remember, it was a, 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 just one of the a, a landslide victory for the Republican Party in the House. The party took back the House. And um, a lot of that money came from the, the Koch's network. Uh, I think they poured a lot of money into 2012 as well. Of course, that didn't the presidential. Like that's the that's now the remaining goal, I would think. Right, the the presidency. So 2012, you're right, and it didn't. And obviously, it frustrated them. They put a lot of money together, and um, and yet they they you know Obama was reelected. And I think this shows you a few things. One is the the presidency is the hardest thing to buy in American politics. It's so visible that that paid that paid advertisements, which is what that kind of money buys, they're very diluted in terms of their influence because presidential races get so much free media. The the media is constantly following the candidates, and and so the public can see what's going on and knows can watch it without having to just see ads. So so money is diluted in in that way. And and of course it takes so much more money because it's an, a national race, um, so it's 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 very hard to to buy the White House, and they're they're seeing that again this year, and they had put together 
a, uh, a treasury that is really, it's completely unprecedented in American history to have as much money in one um, small group as the, the, the group around the Kochs um, has. It, you know, $889 million. Um, it, it's just phenomenal. Nobody's seen anything quite like it. But yet they can't really find a candidate right now that they feel completely comfortable in backing. Um, we'll see what happens. I mean, they're not happy with Trump. Um, he, he's uncontrollable, it seems. Uh, I think they could get quite comfortable with Cruz, who has who has paid his respects to the to the Cokes and gone to their secret meetings with them and and talked about um, his agenda with them. And you know they, they're they're quite aligned in their outlook on many things, and um, not everything, but many things. And so we'll we'll see what happens. But um, um, it's it's a very it's a it's a huge challenge, and I think it's to me at least reassuring that it's not so easy to buy the American presidency, even after Citizens United. I think even, uh, you know, I think we're getting increasingly, at least this is my view, getting increasingly cynical about uh, politics uh, in this country. Uh, use the word buy. It's it's harder to buy the presidency. Uh, you know, you can buy a congressman, etc., etc. I don't think uh, a lot of people would disagree with you, but we're not supposed to be able to do that, right? I agree. And and I and the cynicism is I mean it's 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 the most pernicious aspect of this is that all of this spending I think just undermines people's faith in our democracy and you know that the best person will win with the best ideas instead you 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 know there, there's so much feeling that that these candidates have to sell their souls to get elected and um it's you know there's still terrific people in politics i can promise you i interview a lot of them in, in all the time who are getting into politics for idealistic reasons but it's it's a it's a mess out there and 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 the and, and citizens united has made it far worse it it's just unleashed this kind of big spending that is um you know it's 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 dismaying to anyone who who is worried about corruption one thing I want to talk about is is full disclosure. I've, I've heard uh, Senator McConnell say many times about uh, you know money in politics. It's fine, let the money flow, but let's fully disclose. I want to juxtapose that with uh, you describe some of these groups as uh, being called dark money groups because since they're considered charities, they aren't required to disclose the names of their donors. Uh, I think the Koch brothers and other groups uh, use a lot of these groups. I think the rule is if fifty one percent of your uh, of your outlays considered for charitable purposes and the other 49 is political, you don't have to disclose. And this really, and you're right, the book's called Dark Money because what I was trying to do was, as a reporter, just shine a light on the the, the hidden part of, of the political spending, which has just metastasized since since Citizens United, it's a, it's it's these organizations, as you say, that that are, call themselves charities and claim not to be principally about politics, but in fact they are they're almost like the equivalent, the political equivalent of spending in the Cayman Islands. You know, it's a it's kind of a scam. You follow the money and it goes from one group to the next group to the next, and along the way. A ton of that money's going into politics, and you know they're just playing games with what they say is not political and and meanwhile, what those groups the reason those groups have proliferated the way they have is that they keep secret the who the donors are, and so these sources of money 
in American politics. There are a lot of people with a ton of money that don't want American voters to know that they are trying to influence things. And and so I really thought it was important to let the American public know who are these people and what is it they want. And that's what I tried. I tried to follow the money in this book, and I tried to introduce the readers to who the donors really are and um, and explain the games they're playing. So I ho- I hope that people will take a look at it, and you'll you you will understand a lot more about what's going on behind the scenes if you take a look at it. It's a lot, um, but it's you, you you know it's it's important, and I think it's important that it be reformed at some point if possible. What do you what would be the broad outlines of that reform? Do you think? Well, you know, I am not. Um, you know, I cover politics. I'm not a political. Uh, advocate, particularly, I don't. But there is legislation. There is a. There's something called the Disclose Act that that was defeated by one vote in the House of Representatives a couple of years ago. It's still it's still alive though in, in some version. And you mentioned McConnell. McConnell has cha- changed sides on this. He originally said he was in favor of disclosure, but he he helped kill that Disclose Act, and he's actually not been a supporter of disclosure at all on this. I mean, what people have to remember is when. Citizens United was decided by the Supreme Court in 2010. The justices said that that the the spending would be public, and the public that visibility would be a check on corruption. But instead, what happened was the money was diverted into these dark money groups. So it's not public. It's not what the Supreme Court had envisioned, and so. You know, I think the other obvious thing that that, that that channel for fixing this is the Supreme Court has to come back and take a look at it again, and 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 the, but the you know the whole issue of whether that will happen depends who is the ninth justice on the Supreme Court, and that again will be decided by who who's elected president, who's appointed, and who um, runs the Senate. You know, who's got the majority party of the Senate. So there's, there's, it's, it's completely up in the air and in the hands of the voters right now, really. Uh, finally, uh, I want you to maybe comment on, on a quotation you have at the beginning of the book. This is Brandeis. He says, we must make our choice. We may have democracy or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. Well, I loved that quote because I thought Justice Brandeis um, captured what a dilemma we're facing right now. I mean, we are at this tipping point, and if we want to save our democracy, we really, I think, have to do something about the concentrated big money that's flowing into American politics. Because I don't think anybody, almost, whatever your political point of view is, whether you're far right or far left or right smack in the middle, I I just don't think Americans believe that a handful of people with the most money ought to pick the next leaders and the policies for our country. That's, that's just undemocratic. Mm. And so that's what this book tries to lay out, um, you know, how this happened. And, and, and um, hopefully we'll educate a lot of people. Mm. By the way, I, I just remembered right now, I, I, I uh, didn't follow through on a promise. Before the last break, I said we'd come back and talk about 1980. What, what I was referring to there was when uh, David Koch lost his vice presidential candidate for the uh, Libertarian Party. That I think that spurred Charles to say, you know, we don't want to just be fringe. We want to have a real effect. 
Yes, and what he also said, and this is what, what, to me, is what makes the Koch so completely fascinating. They decided after they after they lost this election in 1980 that they couldn't really win it the old-fashioned way with just getting votes. Their ideas were just too far out, and they weren't going to win it in a, as a majority. And so they decided that politicians, as they put it, were just actors with a script. And what they wanted to do from that point on was write the script. That's what they said. And so what they've tried to do is write the script of American politics by changing the conversation, by funding think tanks that push their own ideas, educational groups that push their own ideas, grassroots organizations that push their own ideas, and um, and holding out money for candidates who will spout their ideas. So they've, they've developed a machine. Um, they're engineers, and they've looked at American politics as engineers might, as a, a, a kind of an assembly line. How do you how do you create the the product we want, which is a libertarian country, in America? And um, they've they've spent forty years and spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get there, and they've um, they've been very smart about it. Well, I'll just I'll just uh, do this part and shot at the end here. There, there's uh, some heartburn. I'm I'm sure in. Uh, Universities. I know there's a, a debate here at Utah State University about uh, some Coke money uh, flowing in, and um, as some people see, it with strings attached. Uh, but we are out of time. Uh, Jane Mayer's book is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Thank you so much. So great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, coming up uh, tomorrow on the program... Uh, we'll be talking with J- uh, Jason Pierce. He says the West, especially the Intermountain States, ranks among the widest places in America. But this fact obscures the more complicated history of racial diversity in the region. His book is Making the White Man's West, Whiteness and the Creation of the American West. He'll also have some comments on the recent standoff in Oregon. Uh, Jason uh, Pierce joins me tomorrow. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening today. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. W. Kamau Bell is hitting the road in a new travel show called United Shades of America. Next time on Q, the comedian will tell us about his voyages into racist subcultures, including the Ku Klux Klan. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Tune in for Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. Coming up, memes. Viruses of the mind. Memes are units of culture transmitted through imitation. Do popular memes replicate because they're useful ideas? Or because they're the fittest? And what happens if the fittest memes are also the most detrimental to us? Memes. Viruses of the mind? Next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us for Philosophy Talk Tuesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.